Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference. All right, we've gotten a lot of great feedback from the announcement of our CanMed 23 Innovation and Investment Summit. If you haven't already heard, CanMed 23 is going to be bigger and better than any of our previous events in a few very important ways. First, as you've noticed, the name is a little different. It's now the CanMed 23 Innovation and Investment Summit, which highlights both the nature of breakthroughs being presented at the event and the inclusion of principles to fund those efforts. Second, CanMed 23 will be held at the Marriott Resort at Marco Island, Florida. This will give attendees like you the chance to fit in a little R&R at one of the most beautiful vacation venues in the world with amenities like world-class golf, tennis, yoga, massages on the beach, and more. Third, the summit will feature immersive workshops to bring you up to speed on the latest in capital markets, medical training, and deep dives into cultivation and laboratory technology. Although CAMED 23 will be different in these ways, some things will remain the same. We will still feature world-class oral presentations in the areas of cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing, curated by our CanMed Advisory Board for impact and importance. In fact, our call for abstracts is open now, and you can submit your abstract for consideration for a CanMed 23 presentation. Just use the link in the show description. We will also continue to share our knowledge with the cannabis community through our CanMed archive, social media platforms, and of course, the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast. So even if you can't join us in Marco Island, you can still be part of the CanMed community. However, if you do want to join us at CanMed 23, you can request your invitation now at canmedevents.com. Our guest today is Dr. Dale Hunt. Dale is a plant scientist, a cannabis lawyer, and a registered U.S. patent attorney with over 20 years of experience protecting plant varieties in the United States and throughout the world. Dale is the founder of Plant and Planet Law Firm, an intellectual property law practice where he provides guidance and expertise on patents and IP matters and aids clients in establishing IP protection for their legal cannabis cultivars, products, and businesses. At CAMED 2022, Dale participated in a panel discussion titled The Impacts of Legalization on the Cannabis Legacy and the Need for Solutions to Create a Healthier Industry, where he provided his expertise with regards to how legacy breeders can protect their IP. During our discussion, we cover the different types of patents that can be used to protect cannabis and hemp plants, what plant patents cover, as well as specific exemptions, how plant patents can be challenged or invalidated, the panic that ensued after the Biotech Institute began patenting cannabis plants in 2017 and how it affected the industry, the biggest hurdles that prevent breeders from protecting their plants, and how breeders can determine which plants are worth patenting. Before we get to my conversation with Dale, I wanted to thank this episode's sponsor, Breeders Best. Breeders Best is the first company to specialize in licensing patent-protected cannabis genetics and the only company in the cannabis space to exclusively serve independent cannabis breeders. 
Born from the desire to help independent cannabis breeders become and or remain economically viable and not be left behind in this rapidly changing industry, Breeders Best exists to bridge the gap between independent cannabis breeders and the marketplace using a licensing model proven in horticultural industries. To learn more, visit breedersbest.com. Okay, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dale Hunt. Good morning, Dale. Thanks for joining us on the on the podcast. Good morning. I appreciate the invitation. All right. Yeah. No, I'm excited to talk with you about uh, about this topic. We're talking all about intellectual property, patents, licensing, trademarks, all that good stuff. Now, patents and IP protection can apply to really any aspect of the cannabis industry, from genetics to manufacturing processes to the final product. So. Could you explain which part of the industry you specialize in and why you chose that to be your focus? Yeah, thanks. Uh, that's that's really fun to talk about. So um, I came to intellectual property as a plant scientist. I studied botany and plant genetics and molecular and cellular biology before I went to law school. And um, in my career as a big law firm attorney, uh, I had an opportunity to work on all kinds of patents, uh, biotech, clean energy, uh, sustainable technologies, medicine, all kinds of things. And I still do to some extent. But as the cannabis industry really emerged and uh, people started realizing that patents were obtainable for uh, cannabis genetics, that really seemed to be a sweet spot for me. Uh, I gave a few talks and a few breeders, I guess, found out that this is what I do. And they came to me and asked me if I could help them protect their cannabis genetics. And that has become uh, a really large part, more than half of my practice. So it's um, it's it's very exciting to see the growth. Um, uh, the industry has its ups and downs, like all industries do, but it's um, it's fun to participate in it. Excellent. Now, can you explain the different types of patents that can be applied to protect a breeder's IP? Yes. Um, the, Let's we can talk about patents and then we'll I'll, I'll talk about a patent equivalent. So I hope I don't forget to talk about that because that's a very important thing in the U.S. and, and abroad. Um, first, starting to it, in talking about patents, the the one that people always think of is something called a plant patent. And plant patents are really for any kind of plant that is asexually propagated. So in, in cannabis, we refer to that as cloning. But, you know, if you think about grapevines and cherry trees and all of those kinds of things, those are all asexually propagated organisms. And the plant patent statute was really created to fill a gap in the kind of available coverage for um, creative work when um, the plant breeding industry as an industry really started to take off. And that was back in the 1930s. So um, one of the options with cannabis is to get a plant patent. Um, the interesting thing about plant patents is they are only infringed by asexual propagation. So let's suppose you've got a strain that or a cultivar. There's some difference of opinion about the, the right. best term to use. Um, I am pretty agnostic about that because I think it's more about just communicating with where people are. But let's suppose you've got a cultivar that um, uh, that is so that it's not easy to breed with and not very stable, but it's really special in its clonal form. And so the real value is all about clonal propagation. And that's really all the only thing anybody would ever want to do with that plant. 
in that case, a plant patent would fit because um, it, it it would provide the adequate coverage to, for something that's only really clonally propagated. The, the thing that's interesting about the cannabis um, plant, though, is, as you know, it can be propagated on, in scale, um, either clonally or by seeds. And one of the things people might want to do with a special cultivar is use it to breed some other things. And what's important about a plant patent is that it's not infringed by breeding and it's not infringed by making seeds. And so if you've got something that, that has value for breeding or for, for producing seeds, a plant patent really wouldn't be enough. And then you'd have to pursue a utility patent. Um, and utility patent is the kind of the common kind of patent that people use on jet engines and, and um, telecommunication devices and pharmaceuticals. Um, but there's a way to make a, a utility patent really fit a plant variety and make it not as complicated or difficult to obtain as a typical utility patent. And that is by defining the, the claims, defining the invention with reference to a specific biological deposit. They say, this is our example of this organism. It's on deposit. We're not trying to get anything that's broader than this organism or that's different, let's say different from this organism, but we are trying to get some breadth around it. So we want to, we're going to make this deposit and then we're going to say, uh, we claim seeds that, that correspond to seeds on this de on deposit. We also claim using plants grown from these seeds or progeny of those plants grown from these seeds uh, for breeding or for uh, making products, et cetera. So you can get a lot broader protection than from a plant patent. So why would anybody ever choose a plant patent? Well, it's faster and it's cheaper than a utility patent. But a utility patent that involves making a deposit, which in my firm, we refer to that as a variety specific utility patent. Um, those cost about twice as much as a plant patent and take a little longer usually to get, but they are, it's, it's still very consistently predictable that you can obtain those. So you're not going to run into a whole lot of barriers if you really did breed that and if it really is new and distinguishable from other things that are out there. Excellent. So back to the plant patent, and it's it's interesting that that asexual propagation is such a, an important piece. So here's a hypothetical. So say I, I purchase a patented cultivar yes. and I self it and, you know, create feminized seeds. And then from that, I do my own pheno hunt and then um, find a cultivar that's actually pretty similar to the first one that I purchased. Mm -hmm. Am I in the clear there? If it's only protected by a plant patent. And so how do you know? Well, you call me or uh, you, you can look it up. If you if if it's marked with, with a patent um, notice, which patented goods are supposed to be marked with, then it will have a patent number. And it will either be a, um, a let's see, a, a, an eight digit number. Um, so it would look like something, yeah, it would look like 10 comma, you know, three digits, three digits, that would be a utility patent. If it has a number that starts with two P's, it's PP, and then usually five digits, that's a plant patent. Um, and if so, if it really is just a plant patent, and what you're doing is you're breeding with it, and then you're doing a pheno hunt, those things, those activities would not infringe a plant patent. And that's why, even though it, it, it's rare that we recommend plant patents, even though I've done tons of plant patents in other with fruits and flowers, um, it's rare that that's adequate protection for a really special cultivar. But like I say, sometimes a cultivar isn't very stable. You're never going to make good seeds from it. It's not easy to breed with for whatever reason, but you just really love that exact clonal form. And then in which case plant patent would be a perfect fit. 
Excellent. And now you did mention patent equivalence and you didn't want to forget to talk about that. Sorry. Yes. Thank you for remembering. I saw you taking notes there. <laughs> um, in addition, the U.S. is really unusual in having three different ways of protecting a plant cultivar. You can certainly, as we've discussed, you can protect it with a plant patent. You can protect it with a utility patent that involves a deposit. You can also protect it with something provided through the USDA called a plant variety protection certificate. And so that's it's a form of intellectual property, and it has a similar scope of it's an exclusionary right, meaning when you have the right to or when you have that that um, grant of intellectual property, it gives you the right to make other people uh, stop doing something in court or stop go to court to make them stop doing something. Or it um, gives you a right to um, authorize them with a license and correct and collect royalties. But a plant variety protection certificate is um, it's a, it's a, it's different from a patent. Um, it is part of an international convention called UPOV. It's the U.S. implementation of UPOV. And um, UPOV was created really as a patent alternative because a lot of countries don't want to have living organisms within their patentable subject matter scope. They don't, they don't, their, their patent offices don't like working with living organisms or have some other public policy reason not to. But recognizing the, the tremendous importance of plant breeding and plant varieties throughout the world, um, there was this international convention created that established its own form of intellectual property protection for plant varieties. And so there are about 75 countries that are members of UPOV, including the U.S. But so when the U.S. joined UPOV, we did it by passing the Plant Variety Protection Act and making the USDA the administrator of that, the administrative agency for that um, act. So what are the differences? The main difference is that, well, there are a few differences. For one, right now at least, um, the since the USDA re requires a seed deposit for a PVP application, um, the only and they receive the seed deposit themselves or some government agency proxy does, uh, they will only accept applications that qualify under federal under the Farm Bill as hemp. So it's got to be 0.3% THC or less in the flower. Um, if it's more than that. And, and you have to describe things like, you know, the THC levels in the flower as part of the overall disclosure. So and if it if it doesn't qualify as hemp, they won't accept the seed deposit. And so they don't have a, a, a real per se ban on accepting marijuana applications or considering marijuana applications. There's just no mechanism to handle the seed deposit requirement. Um, so we we believe that this this will change. It, it changed really fast when the Farm Bill was passed. The USDA very quickly adopted, started accepting applications for hemp genetics, and we believe that they'll do the very same thing for marijuana as soon as that is federally legal. But, and and then the other important thing about PVP protection is that it has a couple of kind of public policy carve outs. It is not an infringement of a PVP certificate for someone to breed with that variety. It's it's an, it's a built into the statute that that's okay to do. Hmm. Um, so again, if you want to if you want to have breeding be prohibited, you've by with your intellectual property rights, you've got to do that with the utility patent because the PVP certificate and the plant patent will not uh, will not prevent breeding. And then the other carve out, the other kind of public policy right, is that someone who um, obtains legitimately seeds of a of a PVP protected variety has a right to bulk out the to, to make the same number of seeds for the next uh, the next planting. That's called the, the farmer's exemption. And so 
you buy the seeds once, but then you can make your own seeds after that. Now you can't make them to sell to third parties, but you can make them to replant the same area, the same acreage. So, you know, there are scenarios under which a PVP certificate would make a lot of sense and would be the right thing. But first of all, it's got to be hemp. Secondly, you've got to be, you've got to recognize the farmer's exemption and the uh, breeder's exemption and be okay with those. Now, the one other little nuance to that, which is that in the U.S. and I think in most UPOP countries, if you don't like those exemptions, you can only license, you can just have a policy that, well, we don't license this to anyone and we don't give access to these seeds to anyone who isn't willing to sign an agreement that they will not breed or that they will not, that they'll buy new seed from us every season. And so in most countries, it's okay to contract out of those exemptions and to fill those gaps with a, with a contract. Um, but some countries are so committed to that as a matter of public policy that they won't, they'll say any contract that attempts to take away these exemptions is invalid. Hmm. So um, th that's country by country and it changes sometimes. So uh, you'd want to get uh, a lawyer that knows this and works with it to check the countries of interest and see if you could contract out of that. But that's, um, that's, that's the IP. Well, it's an IP. It's a form of intellectual property. It's a patent equivalent, but not really a patent and really plant variety protection throughout all the rest of the world is done through UPOP rather than through patent offices with, with a couple of really minor exceptions. Great. And so which type of uh, IP protection do you think is, or do you see as the most commonly used to protect cannabis cultivars? Well, you know, what's interesting is if you watched the patent issuances over the last few years, you saw a lot of plant patents issuing. Um, and I think it's for two reasons. One is they do issue faster than other patents. Um, they're cheaper. And so people who just want to have a patent for, you know, portfolio building purposes or bragging rights or something might choose one like that. Um, and I think also a lot of people didn't realize the weaknesses of a plant patent and how a plant patent doesn't work very well for, well, it doesn't provide really full coverage for a plant like cannabis that can be propagated both ways. Um, so I think it was a, a combination of all those reasons. You, you are seeing more of these variety specific utility patents um, issuing now. Um, we've got a lot more than I could count off the top of my head. We've got a lot that are pending. We have a few plant patents that are pending and somebody who has, um, for whom protection, quick and thorough protection is a higher priority than saving money. They can, they can certainly pursue both. And so you could start with a plant patent, get that issued quickly, have your clonal propagation protected and then follow it um, with a, with a uh, VSUP, a variety specific utility patent that ties back to the plant patent filing. And then you can have both kinds of coverage, but now you're paying, you know, something like three X the cost of the plant patent instead of uh, one or the other one X or two X, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 No. And then you sort of mentioned monitoring the different patents that have issued over the years. And, you know, it's funny about five years ago, when groups like Biotech Institute began registering patents on cannabis plants, um, there was a lot of panic in the industry from people who thought that, you know, they would maybe be sued for growing weed in their own backyard. So what has become of those early patents and have they been enforced or had any real impact on the industry? I think they've had a big impact on the industry, but maybe not the intended impact. So. Right. The whole way I got into the industry, I was minding my business in my office in San Francisco, and I got an email from somebody who was organizing something called the Open Cannabis Project, and they were all in a flutter 
over those biotech institute patents. They thought this is the beginning of the end of this emerging industry. It's going to be dominated by overbroad patents and it's going to put a chilling effect on every, all the home growers and all the home breeders and people are going to freak out. And they did kind of freak out. Um, so they called me because they said, well, we not, we want somebody who really knows plant IP. We found you and would you be willing to, to um, advise us? And so that's actually how I got into the cannabis yeah. industry in the first place. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm glad that happened. It's been a, it's been a really interesting um, uh, evolution step in my, in my career personally. But I, I think everybody did, did believe that there would be this really overbearing, um, oppressive uh, approach to patenting and patent enforcement in the industry. And there are a few things that I think limit that practically, practically or, or perhaps legally. And I'll try to go into all that. But before I forget, when I started, when I got in, involved in this and became so um, involved in the industry and going to meetings and talking to people and giving talks and things, I realized that there were a lot of questions and not as many answers. And so I started a blog called, it's at plantlaw.com. It answers a lot of the really common questions. In fact, one of the posts I, I, I is titled because it was a question I got a million times at, uh, at a meeting was, can Monsanto make me stop growing Monsanto or anybody else make me stop growing my own plants? And, um, so I had, I, I, I started answering these questions in the blog. I don't um, blog as much anymore. I, I need to get back to it, but I'd say, um, the posts that are there answer a lot of the most common questions, but yeah, there was so much anxiety about that. So what has happened since then and why, did it not go the way the people who spent tons of money on those patents maybe thought it would? Um, and I, I'm not, I can't read their mind. I don't know what their motive was, but these early patents, just to give some context for people who haven't seen them, made the attempt to protect, um, to, to carve out some an IP position, not based upon a specific genetics um, like seeds on deposit or like one cultivar and its clonal progeny, but it defined the patent scope, the patent right, more in terms of a chemotype. Mm -hmm. So it was really any cannabis plant that has, that, that checks these boxes, you know, a, a certain uh, THC to CBD ratio, a certain uh, terp, really general terpene profile that really would cover a lot of things. So why did that patent ever get allowed? Well, the way a patent examination process works is the examiner, um, they're supposed to find reasons to reject a patent claim. But how do they find their reasons? They do a search of the literature. And so they look at prior patents and they look at prior academic publications and anything they can get from, say, um, you know, from the Internet, trade, trade journals or anything else. So what's what is unique, absolutely unique about the cannabis industry in comparison with other high value industries is that um, there was a lot of prior commercial activity and a lot of prior inventive activity, but it was the opposite of published. It was hidden. Mm -hmm. And so if an examiner needs to find a way to reject a patent claim that is very broad, he or she has to go look at prior patents, and there weren't a lot, prior academic publications, not a lot, prior commercial activity or evidence of prior commercial activity, which was all hidden. And so the examiner may have had may have done a great job examining this, but did not have the tools to reject it. So, of course, now the, the community sees these claims and say, hey, that, that's Jamaican lion. And Jamaican lion's been around for a lot longer than this patent, than, than when this patent was filed. And the, the, the community starts to take its collective memory 
and creates another kind of what you could call prior art. And, and that, that's the term that, that, that they use for those things that the examiner finds in a search. You could say, this is prior art. It's just not published prior art, but it is something that factually is out there and that people could verify. This is at least the line of reasoning. I haven't independently verified this stuff, but um, so they say, all right, in our community collective memory or, or in the, the, the evidence that individual people could bring forward, this chemotype existed a long time before this patent was filed. And so what does that do? Well, it, it explains why the patent was granted in the first place. The examiner didn't know as much as was actually out there. They're not omniscient and they can only do what they can do with searching. So the, 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 the thing that would have killed that patent application perhaps was uh, something that was factual, but not, not knowable by an examiner. But once you start enforcing a patent, you know, you, you take, you, you identify a defendant and you sue them and you tell them you've got to either pay me some money or stop using uh, my patented um, uh, technology or both. Uh, that's when, that's when it gets real, right? And, um, and somebody's highly motivated to dig deeper um, and dig deeper than an examiner had time to do mm. and use more resources. Now, of course, that process is tremendously expensive. So one of the things I was advocating early on um, in my blogging was to form some kind of a community coalition that would a little bit like NATO or something. We'd all stand, we'd all agree to defend whoever is the one that gets uh, that gets poked by this first. And we, you know, we'd pull our resources and pull our community knowledge to overcome an overbroad patent. Now, what's cool about this is, uh, to my knowledge, those patents have never been asserted. Um, mm -hmm. They. Uh, they were maybe, but they really galvanized the community in a way that I'm, I'm grateful for them. And, um, and there may be some real, I'm not saying that the patents don't have any value or don't have any great business purpose. They may, um, that's, that's, um, knowledge that I don't have. I don't have any inside information on that company. Um, and of course that company is not the only one there. It, it's kind of a patent attorney's job to try to get the broadest claims they can. But when I'm counseling a client, I tell them we want to get the broadest valid claims you can get. We don't want mm -hmm. you to have a patent that's not going to be valid. And so just to close the loop on that, when if someone does assert a patent against me and I do have evidence that the patent never should have been granted, one of my defenses, I might say, yeah, well, I'm not saying I don't, that what I'm doing doesn't fall within these claims, which would constitute infringement. What I'm saying is these claims never should have been granted. This is an invalid patent. And um, my defense is not my own activities. It's that this patent, the, the, the patent office didn't did, granted a patent that never should have been granted. And and what's interesting about that is, if a patent is invalidated in litigation, because the defendant can produce evidence like that, it's gone forever. Yeah. Um, so you lose once, and you and on on a validity challenge, and and you're done. Uh, you know that, and that assumes that you've exhausted all of your appeals and everything. But uh, so you know it's. It, that might be another reason that these patents haven't been asserted yet is that there's a risk of, of having them um, exposed as being invalid. And, and I want to hasten to say I'm not providing legal advice or legal analysis on those patents, but what I am doing is talking about um, what uh, the community has informed me of and uh, combined with some general principles of patent law. So um, no, no legal advice or opinions here, but just a, a summary of what's happened over the last few years. It's a good disclaimer. <laughs> so, so you mentioned that you, you help breeders sort of apply for and acquire patents on their genetics. Do you ever represent um, growers on the other side where maybe there is um, 
they are being sued for potentially using patented uh, material. And you're, as you described, um, maybe defending or invalidating that patent. Yeah, you know, um, what I do is something that comes a little bit before that. Patent litigation is so tremendously expensive that there's a lot of um, kind of paper shuffling and and foot stomping and maybe saber rattling that happens before a lawsuit is filed in, in many cases. So somebody will get a letter and they'll say, and the letter will say something like, maybe you're not aware, but we have a patent that, um, that has this scope and you might be operating within that patent. And we'd like you to take a look at that and we're open to license discussions. So, and that's, that's a really gentle kind of uh, nod towards a cease and desist letter. And the reason those are usually so gentle is if you come on really strong and say, you're infringing our patent and we're going to sue you, that can create something called declaratory judgment jurisdiction, which will let the party that just got that nasty letter sue you first. And they they could, if they've got the money to do this, they can say, oh, we got this letter. We're taking you to court um, for a declaratory judgment that your patent is invalid or that we don't infringe. And that shifts the balance of power. So there's, there's some really good reason not to write um, overly aggressive, overly explicit uh initial letters like that. So you usually just try to make someone aware that they've got a risk without creating declaratory judgment jurisdiction. So when a client gets a, a letter like that, whether it's, and it's usually not about plant genetics, it's usually about, you know, some manufacturing technique or some composition or something. And I work with all of those different subject matters in, in cannabis um, and uh, across a lot of other industries. They get a letter like that and they come to me and they say, um, Let's take a look at this and see, well, they say, help me. And then I say, let's take a look at that patent. Let's talk about what you're actually doing. Let's do, let's interpret these patent claims in view of not just what they say, but in view of the supporting um, application that was filed and in view of the arguments that they made to the patent office to get, the, to get it allowed in the first place. And th this whole analysis is called a freedom to operate analysis. And I do a lot of that. And I'm actually writing a, a series of blog posts about FTO that I'm hoping to drop later this year. So um, when that happens, you know, the first thing you do is you look at the patent claims themselves and, and you look at and the, the claims are the part of the patent that defines the legal right, defines the invention. And you compare that with what the, um, the accused party is doing. And if you can find even one thing that that claim requires, that your client or your, you know, whoever is not doing, then that's, that's what, what you, people refer to that in a shorthand called the missing element rule. If there's something that the claim requires that you're clearly not doing, then you just don't infringe. And it, it's not always black and white. Sometimes it's pretty hard to figure that out, but, and, and let's say that right now you do infringe every, you, you have every one of the elements of that claim, but there's a design change that you could make in one little feature that would make it so that you there, there's now a missing element. Then you just you make a design modification. You write back and say, uh, you know, our current uh, our current product doesn't seem to have everything this patent requires. So respectfully, um, see you later. Uh, there and there's a lot of that. And then sometimes a client will just come to me with knowing that one of their competitors is doing a lot of patenting, and they'll say, hey, can we keep an eye on these guys? Keep an eye on the claims that, that are issuing, and. Um, Let's do a checkup every once in a while and make sure that we're not um, stepping on their toes or that we're not facing any risks. You know, boards of directors and inventor, investors love it when you're that careful, as long as it's not too expensive to be that careful. So there's there's a really good balance between, um, you know, kind of keeping your nose clean as a company and making sure that you're not infringing patents and that you're aware of the ones that you need to be watching out for 
um, and uh, occasionally, you know, altering your activities, to redesigning your, your products or your methods. The, the, but to circle back to um, the question really about plant genetics, usually, the, the, because as I've, as I've said, these kinds of patents, like a plant patent, only infringed by actual cloning of the exact same variety. Uh, a variety-specific utility patent only infringed by really starting with the same genetics and doing something with it that's within the scope of those claims. It's really rare to accidentally infringe something like that and not even know that you did. Maybe you received something from someone else and you're working with it and then you find out late in the process that it was covered by a patent and you didn't know it. And so maybe you did in good faith um, infringe that. Well, then the smartest thing to do is stop doing it and move on to something else. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's really rare that, that these things have to be litigated because if someone isn't using the same genetics, it's pretty straightforward DNA test. And you, you guys certainly know that those things uh, in medicinal genomics. Um, it's pretty straightforward DNA test to do a comparison and say, well, you know, these might look superficially similar phenotypically, but they're not the same genotypically. They've right. got the, all these differences. And then anybody who, who has that patent would be crazy to continue to pursue the case. They'd just be throwing money uh, away down, down a hole because the evidence would end up demonstrating that it's not an infringement. Um, on the other hand, if there is a, a, a great match, either a, an identical match or a match that shows that this, these two, this, this, this accused plant definitely descended from this, this um, patented plant, then depending exactly on, on the scope of that patent right, um, it, it may be a clear infringement. And, and it's, the reason these things don't get litigated is because the evidence is usually so clear one way or the other that there's going to be a settlement way earlier in the process without spending all the money on discovery and, and a trial. Excellent. Yeah, no. And you brought up genotype, which was great because I was we're genotyping, I should say, which is great because I was going to ask you about that. Now, I imagine that's probably not a requirement for a patent application, but I imagine it's pretty valuable, especially if you're having a plant patent and it's going to be asexually propagated, because then, like you said, you would that is some great evidence to show that it's exactly the same. Yeah. The, the, what's interesting is the plant patent statute says that you have to dis, you have to disclose as much about the variety as you can. Um, it doesn't require you to do a DNA test. I always tell people, if you've got DNA information, even just a few markers, or if you've got a whole genotype or whatever, go for it. Let's include that. But it's not required. I've gotten lots and lots of, of plant patents and variety-specific utility patents without submitting DNA information. But if you, again, if you've got it, and, and a lot of things originate um, from it, you know, you do a DNA test and you say, oh, this looks pretty interesting. And then you end up deciding this might be interesting enough that I should patent it. So, and by then you've already got the DNA information in your pocket. You should include it in the application, um, but it's not required. And so I always tell people, look, if you, if you've got it, use it. If you're curious and you can afford the test, go for it, do it. It'll, it's great information. If you um, don't have the DNA test right now, well, you'll certainly want to get it if there's an infringement or if you're accused of infringing. But the cool thing about DNA is it doesn't really change. If you've got a clonally propagated organism, it's going to be there. Um, and you can use it when the evidence is, is, you can go get the test when the evidence is needed. Excellent. Um, so what would you say are the most common hurdles uh, preventing breeders or growers from protecting their IP? I love that question. Um, and one of the early blog posts I did was uh, the, the question was, 
how can I know if my plant is unique or different enough for patenting? And the answer is, if you bred it um, and selected it, and you can identify how it's different from its parents, it's already unique enough for patenting or new enough for patenting. The, that's really not the challenge. The challenge is deciding which things are worth patenting. You know, if you, if you commit to patenting um, a, a cultivar, you're going to be spending five figures. Um, it's, you're going to spend at least 10 to 15 to get a plant patent and, you know, probably 25 to 30 to get a variety specific utility patent. That can vary a little bit, but it's not going to vary a lot. Um, and so you're making a pretty big commitment there. Let's say that you've got something that's going to be the flavor of the month a couple of years from now, and then it'll fade away. Um, not worth patenting, probably. On the other hand, you got something that might be licensed worldwide. That's the next, um, you know, the next huge thing that everybody wants to grow. Then it'd be foolish not to spend 30, 50, 100, whatever it took to protect that. That would just be a rounding error on all of the value that that thing creates. And so, um, but the problem is you've got to, you, you, there are certain deadlines that you, within which you need to file a patent application. And uh, it's usually before you know if you've got a major home run or the flavor of the month. And so um, I just, the way I, the way I talk to clients about this is I say, do you think that this is going to be um, increasing in value and demand in five years, or will it have already kind of run its course? And that's not an easily knowable question, but they'll know it better than I would. And if they believe that it's, um, that it's going to be increasing in demand in five years and 10 years, then patenting is really kind of a no-brainer. Um, if they think that it will already be kind of passe or, or less interesting in, in, um, in three or four years, then by the time they got a patent, nobody would be infringing it. So, you know, it, it just, it, usually it more, turns into a business decision more than a, um, a legal decision, if that makes sense, legal or technical question. Yeah, no, it does. And you mentioned deadlines and this might be a basic question, but are you only able to apply for a patent before you've actually sold it or commercialized it? It's a great question. In the U.S., there you can you can apply up to a year after the first um, public disclosure. Um, now, what's interesting about that is, um, and this might seem quite surprising, it was kind of surprising to me, um, is that let's say you want a plant patent, then what constitutes a public disclosure is public availability of that exact genotype in clone form. So a lot of people have had some really special genetics that they've been propagating and um, growing themselves and selling flour, but they've never sold any clones. If you've never sold any clones, you don't have a deadline yet for plant patenting, even if you've been selling flour for a long time. I ran this uh, scenario past um, one of the senior examiners at the patent office, and I said, let's suppose somebody's had a They've been clonally propagating and selling flour for 30 years, but nobody's ever, nobody that them has ever had access to a clone. He said, yeah, that's still patentable as a plant patent because the thing that you are saying is new is that living plant in clonal form. So if that still hasn't been out there, even though the flour has been. Now, let's suppose you want a VSUP, a variety specific utility patent. Then anything that has been out there to the public for more than a year is not a, not eligible. So let's say seeds have never been out there, um, public hasn't been able to breed with it, the, um, the clone form hasn't been out there, but flour has been out there, flour and extracts. Then you just have to be careful not to claim flour or extracts. You can still claim the seeds, you can still claim the breeding, you can claim anything that hasn't been publicly available. 
but prior sale of flour or extracts may make it that, um, that that's not part of what you could claim at that point. And then just to, there, there are no short answers when, when you ask me a question, but um, <laughs> when you go to the PVP system, the PVP and UPOV system, the deadlines are quite different. They're defined based on um, exploitate, commercial exploitation of a variety. And that even, that, that term has a slightly different definition in a lot of different countries. So first of all, you have to dig in and ask yourself, what what is the level of activity that creates, that, that constitutes exploitation of the variety in this country? And when did that start? Um, so, and then um, that's further complicated by the fact that uh, for cannabis under UPOV, you'd have two deadlines. You'd have one deadline would be you have to file within a year of local exploitation and within four years of the first exploitation anywhere. So let's say I start selling flour, um, which would I think would almost certainly be considered commercial exploitation. I start selling flour this year. I've got a hard four-year deadline for anywhere in the world to get my UPOV application filed. And I have a hard one-year deadline for, for the country where I've been selling, when I've been doing anything commercial with that plant. Um, so, you know, sometimes just licensing a plant into a country and authorizing someone to start cultivating it may or may not cross the threshold of commercial exploitation. So you've really got to dig down and, and understand the, the rules in the countries where you're interested in protection. But uh, we're expecting, as, as that four-year deadline approaches, we're expecting to be filing a lot more applications in foreign countries uh, under that, uh, that kind of deadline regime. Great, great. All right, so, so winding down here a bit, um, do you feel like there's an aversion to patents and IP protection in the cannabis breeder community um, in general? Because again, going back to when those first ones issued, there was a lot of people on social media or sort of grandstanding that, you know, this is a community plant. We shouldn't be patenting it at all. Has that sort of, has that changed people more agreeable to it? You know, there's a lot, there's a widely varying opinion about that. And I respect that, you know, this is really a values thing for a lot of people. It's, it's um, community standards and values and principles. And I would never want to talk anybody out of their values or, or their, their deeply held principles, but I would like to give them opportunities to think differently just in case they're interested in examining the question from another point of view. And one of the posts that I wrote on my blog is a, it's titled something like lessons for, from terrific from Tom terrific on good fences. And this actually makes reference to uh, a, some a controversy that happened with Tom Brady and trademarking the term Tom Terrific. And, um, uh, and that's a little bit, I, if I go into too much detail, it'll take too long, but basically look at that blog and you'll see that it's really about whether it's, it, it, it whether it's, it, it goes to questions of whether it's right to own land, whether it is ever right to, um, to have any, any like ownership rights on something as natural and sacred as a cannabis plant. And the point that I make is, um, you may think it's not, but let's suppose that, um, uh, it, well, if, when you get an intellectual property, you're still allowed to let other people use your IP, but you have the choice of keeping some people out. It's like building a fence around your property. You can let people through if you want, but you also have the right to keep people off your property if you want to. And um, and so that, that's, that's one angle on it. Um, the other angle I, I sometimes, I talk about the ethics of patenting cannabis. And um, here's the angle on this one. 
if you are a plant breeder, your, your life, your life's work is a creative work and you've been creating something special that people benefit from and that somebody might make a lot of money on. Um, but unlike somebody who writes a song or writes a book or makes a movie, you don't have any automatic protection. Um, in the U.S. and almost the entire world, there's automatic copyright protection for those kinds of creatives works like songs and books and movies. As soon as it's created, you don't even have to register anything. You can get stronger rights by registration, but you've got automatic copyright from the moment it's created. Unfortunately, that doesn't exist for plant varieties. So you've got these other creative people, these plant breeders, who very much like an author or a photographer or, or, or whatever, they have this great creative work that has tremendous value. But if they don't protect it, um, they don't get paid the same way somebody can who, who just creates different kinds of work that has copyright protection. So if you if you look at it that way, you might say, all right, um, maybe I wish patents weren't the way to do this. And maybe I don't really like patents, especially the ones that can be abused. But as a way for somebody to protect their life's work and to get some value out of their life's work and have it be their living instead of just a, a hobby, you know, who's rich enough to, I don't know very many people in the cannabis industry that are independently wealthy and can just breed for fun. Um, most of them need to find a way to, to pay their bills from their work. Uh, and so patenting um, or other kinds of intellectual property protection just kind of level the playing field with copyrights and, and other kinds of creative work. And I think that plant breeders are every bit as worthy of getting paid as authors and um, sculptors and, and fine artists and, and so on. I, and so I, to me, the intellectual property protection just helps them get paid for their work. Excellent. No, that's a great place to stop. But before I let you go, uh, I want to give you a chance to plug any social media or resources. I know you mentioned the blog a lot. I'll definitely put a link to that in the show description. But anything else that people can um, can look at to, to learn more or maybe get in touch with you? Well, I appreciate that. Uh, my law firm is called Plant and Planet Law Firm. Um, it's plantandplanet.com. Uh, easy to find. And um, I also have a company that I started to help breeders protect and license their special cultivars. It's called Breeders Best, and um, that's at breedersbest.com. So um, we're excited about being able to help people in this space, and we love helping people. And so if, if anybody has um, questions or, or can think of some way we could help them with any invention in the life sciences area, whether it's cannabis or something else, we'd love to hear from them. All right, Dale. Thanks again for taking the time to be on the podcast um, and hope to see you out at a KMED event. Thanks a lot. I'll be there. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dale Hunt. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Breeders Best. Our next episode will drop August 31st. That's two weeks from today. In the meantime, please do check out the new and improved CanMedEvents.com. The team really did an exceptional job updating the website with all the information about our CanMed 23 event. And of course, you can still find videos of all the previous CanMed presentations and panels in the CanMed archive. You can also find all the previous episodes of the podcast as well. And while you're there, make sure you sign up for email alerts to get all the notifications around this innovative industry-leading event. 
I also invite you to engage with us on all our social media platforms. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed Events. And lastly, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Doing so really helps us improve our rankings and reach more listeners. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to join us on the next CanMed Coffee Talk.